I, uh, I get the opportunity. I don't have to preach, but I get to preach. And uh, one of the biggest things about preparing a sermon is not so much what God is going to speak through you to other people. It's what he's actually speaking to you yourself. And when I have the opportunity to sit down and actually work through scripture and prepare a sermon, um, I think a lot about like, where I've been in my own walk and where I've been in my own journey. And there was a point in my life when I would uh, think about my own Christian walk and I was thinking, you know what, I, I truly thought Christianity was about improving myself. It's about making me a better person. Isn't that what it's about? Becoming a better person? And I never for once really thought about what God would call me to do. Christianity wasn't about doing, it was about being, right? Be a better person. What was God going to call me to do? And not only that, the power of the Holy Spirit, because you hear about the Holy Spirit, but where? Where would the Holy Spirit take me? What would the Holy Spirit do in and through me? And not only that, but as a Christian, that I'm called to go out and to share the gospel and to live a life, what would happen when I would do that? What would happen when I would go out and share Christ with someone? Because it sounds like a good idea until you, you share with somebody who doesn't want to hear it. And I wanted to share these words with, uh, with you this morning. This is from John 14, and this is what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We've been walking through the book of Acts, and this is one thing that I want you to understand when you walk through the book of Acts. It's not about people going out and doing extraordinary things. It's God doing extraordinary things in and through people by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that Jesus promised them would come after his death and resurrection. The Holy Spirit is going to be directing their steps. So what we're doing is we're watching people that are just like us, normal, ordinary people who allow themselves to be used by God through the work of the Holy Spirit. The work that they're doing is dependent upon them, not how smart they are and the decisions that they're making. It's dependent upon him. And I think back to what Jesus said to Ananias about the Apostle Paul. And he says to him in Acts 9, this is a few chapters before, he says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What happens when we go out and we share Jesus with a world that doesn't know him nor wants to know him? What happens? You see, we, as people, I don't know if you know this, but we don't like suffering. <laughs> Who wants to sign up for suffering? Nobody likes suffering. In fact, we avoid suffering at all costs. We live in a very Western, secularized society that tells us more and more is what you want to do with suffering is you want to get rid of it. You want to eradicate it as much as possible. Suffering is the result of just random chance. If somebody you know gets stricken with a disease, sorry, that was just their bad luck. That's what the world begins to tell us about Suffering, So we avoid it or we throw more money at it or we think it's more about education. But, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about that particular topic. 
about suffering. In fact, if you look at a lot of the letters in the New Testament, many of the writers continue to say the same thing, whether it's the book of James, whether it's Peter, whether it's Paul and his epistles. He's continuing to tell people that you are going to suffer. It's a fact of life. It's a reality that you are going to suffer. And what I want to look at this morning is what exactly does it mean to suffer for the gospel? What does it mean to suffer to live and share Jesus? I want to challenge you today. Because I was challenged when I was preparing this. And I'm not getting challenged by myself. I'm bringing you along with me. I want to challenge you today what you think Christianity is and what you think Christianity looks like. What does it look like to be somebody who says, I follow Jesus and I give Jesus my life? Paul is following Jesus' footsteps. We are called to also. But what exactly does that mean and what exactly does that look like for us? So if you have your Bibles, open up. We're going to look at Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 28. We'll actually, we'll have it up here also. Bam, there it is. So Acts 14, 19 through 28. You guys, let's let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, you know, every week we come, Lord, and we open up the Bible, and we just dig into your word, Lord, and you have so much to say in your word, Lord. I just pray today, Father, that you would just prepare our hearts and minds to hear you. Um, It's a topic that nobody wants to to read about. Nobody wants to hear about God. But the Bible says a lot about suffering, Lord. Show us what it means to suffer for the gospel. Show Show us what it means to suffer for Christ, Lord. But not only that, Lord, help us to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word, Lord. Show us how do we do this in our lives, Father, through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to hear your word, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's look at Acts 14, verses 19 through 28. And it says this. It said, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. And I want to just start off to give you guys just a really, really brief overview of sort of where we've been right now. Because what we've seen is you see people like ourselves who've now gone out to the power of the Holy Spirit and gone out and begin preaching the word of God. And we've been following Paul 
and Barnabas. And a few weeks ago, what we saw was Paul was sort of, he was going and he was sharing the gospel and he was talking about Jesus and they had various reactions to that. Some people followed and some people began to oppose him. And what it says right here is that there were a group of Jews that came over a hundred miles to follow them and to oppose what they were doing. And they began speaking to the crowds. Now, if you remember just a couple weeks ago, these were the same people who were just worshiping them as gods. They were worshiping Paul and Barnabas as gods for what they had just done. And now they change just like that. They stone him. They drag him outside the city. And they leave him there for dead. You know, I think the one thing that really jumps out is how easily people will believe anything today unless you're firmly grounded in truth. You see, I think that that's what Paul had in mind when he writes his letter to the church of Ephesus, when he says to them in Ephesians 4, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Paul understood. And what he was doing was he was going and he was preaching Jesus. He was preaching truth. Jesus is truth. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Truth, by its very nature and definition, is exclusive. Two plus two is what? Four. It's not two plus two is five. It's not two plus two is what you think it is. Two plus two is four. Truth is, ex- is exclusive. And Paul is grounded in truth and he's going and he's preaching Jesus and he's getting a different reaction from various audiences. And the extreme reaction is they don't agree with what he says. They oppose him. They stone him, throw him outside the city and leave him for dead. How does Paul react? He gets up, goes back into the city that he was just stoned, stays overnight, and the next day continues on and continues to preach the gospel. Continues to go and to preach the gospel and to make disciples and to encourage them. And what he's showing us is the first thing right here, is that as believers, as somebody who's professed your faith in Christ, as you're living as what we call a Christian He says, we must suffer to enter the kingdom. Suffer to enter the kingdom. And I want to read these words. This is from a minister in the 1800s. His name is Clovis Chaplin. He says this, You may suffer and yet be unchristlike, but no man can be Christlike and fail to suffer. If you ever, by the grace of God, become a partaker of the divine nature, you must also inevitably become a partaker of his sufferings. It says that if you are somebody who partakes of the divine nature, I've given my life to Christ, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, that suffering is going to come as a result. You see, Jesus said this in Matthew 10. He says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What does Paul do after his suffering? He backtracks and he goes through the same exact cities where he experienced suffering. And he goes and he goes to encourage them. And he says it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Now there's two questions that pop up. Number one, what does it mean to enter the kingdom? And number two, why is it through suffering? 
Why is it through suffering that we enter the kingdom? When he talks about to enter the kingdom of God, what he's saying is it's this idea of experiencing sort of God's realm through, through death or Jesus' return. But what he's also saying is to be like Christ. He's not saying that salvation is achieved through suffering. What he's saying is if you've given your life to Christ, you enter the kingdom, you become like Christ through suffering. Why suffering? Why is it through many tribulations? What he means is like to suffer for Christ, to suffer for sharing the gospel, to identify, to live every day and to identify with Christ's suffering. You hear the term like taking up your cross on a daily basis. What does suffering do? What does suffering allows us to do? Well, it does three things. Number one, when we suffer, we experience an intimacy with God. If any of you remember from the summer sermon series in Ruth, one of the things that we shared was a hope reality chart. And remember on that chart, on that graph, it said, here is hope up here. Here is our reality down here. And that space in between is what we call the desert. It's what we go through. What you do in that desert is really important. Because anybody who God uses, he takes them through a desert. We have two reactions. We can either go through that desert and say, God, I don't believe in prayer. I don't believe in you. And we can turn away from God or we can use that as an opportunity in the midst of the desert to draw closer to him. Suffering allows us to experience an intimacy with God that we may have his joy and his love even in the midst of suffering in our life. Suffering also helps us to build and encourage others in the faith too. You see, what Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, and he says in 2 Corinthians, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. What happens when Paul is stoned? Who comes out to see him? The disciples. They come out there to minister to him. They bring him back into the city. And then what Paul does, he goes, he continues to share the gospel, and then he backtracks, encouraging and building up the new believers and telling them that this is what's going to happen, that you as a believer in Christ, you are going to suffer too. So we experience an intimacy with God. It enables us to go and to build and encourage other people. But it also gives us a hope of future glory. To enter the kingdom is to become like Jesus. And I want you to listen to these words from author and poet Dorothy Sayers. And she says this, she says, It seems to me quite disastrous that the idea should have got about that Christianity is an otherworldly, unreal, idealistic kind of religion that suggests that if we are good, we shall be happy. On the contrary, it is fiercely and even harshly realistic, insisting that there are certain eternal achievements that make even happiness look like trash. What she's saying is, somehow it got into the minds, and somehow we as Christians bought into the belief that if we are good people, we'll be happy. That that's what this is all about. And what she's saying is, no, it is fiercely and harshly realistic, and it says that there are certain eternal achievements that we can look forward to as believers and as Christians that make even present-day happiness look like trash. And if you truly knew what lied ahead and the glory that awaits us, 
becoming like Jesus, that even this present happiness today would look like trash. What do you think the Apostle Paul was thinking as he was being stoned? Because remember, it was the Apostle Paul who stood by as Stephen was being stoned. And he hears the words of Stephen saying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you think that he ever imagined that he himself was going to be stoned also? I tell you, it was never underestimate that when you're going through suffering and trials, that people are watching how you respond to that. Because people watch how you respond. Because who does it point to? God. And how you react in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of those trials. It shows that God is real. You think Paul ever believed that he was going to go through the same thing? Because that's what happened to him in his life. What was it that kept Paul going? And I think he gives us a clue when you read his letter to the Romans, when he says in Romans 5, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. We have hope. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That even in the midst of our suffering, we have hope because God is with us in the midst of our suffering. You see, Jesus said this himself. It was Jesus who became human through suffering, and we grow into Christ-likeness through suffering also. And as we share in his sufferings, we also share in his glory. The more we suffer, the more we become like Jesus. But we have hope. Hope because of who he is. This is why Tim Keller says, he says, the main reason that Christians insist that God can be trusted in the midst of suffering is that God himself has firsthand experience of suffering. God himself has firsthand experience of suffering. I heard this comparison the other day. I thought it was so interesting. It was, it was a comparison between Buddha and Jesus. And it says, if, you, if any of you know anything about Buddhism and Buddha, what it says is Buddha's belief was that the problem with life was suffering. That to eliminate suffering from your life, you have to let go of desire. You have, a life, you have to live a life of moderation and self-control. And what happens eventually through this process of birth and rebirth, you can enter happiness, a state of happiness and bliss, which they call nirvana. That you sort of work your way through rebirth and rebirth out of this world into a state called nirvana. Buddha was pointing to nirvana, but what he was saying was, you need to figure out how to get there on your own. you got to work this out for yourself. And what he was also saying is that there is a higher reality that we need to get to because there is no worldly hope. That this world is about suffering. you got to get to a higher reality. Work it out for yourselves. You know what Jesus did? Jesus doesn't just tell us how to get through suffering. God looked at us and said, I'm going to suffer with you. He came down here and he suffered with us so that we can't look at him and say, God, you have no idea what I'm going through right now. And he can say, yes, I do, because he suffered for us. He suffers with us. That's who God is. That's the God who we serve. And we don't have to look for this other world 
to get away from suffering. What we can do is we can look at this world right now and realize that we have hope even in the midst of this world right now as we suffer. I don't care if you're somebody who's professed faith in Christ or if you haven't professed faith in Christ. You will suffer in this world. The question is, where is your hope? Or more importantly, who is your hope in? And what the Apostle Paul does is he goes back to the very places that stoned him. He could have just as easily gone right down to Antioch to that church and be there, but he decided to backtrack through all those places that had opposed him and that have stoned him. And he goes and he builds them up. He says, suffering, suffering to enter the kingdom. It's an intimacy with God. It enables us to build and encourage other people for what we've been through. It's a hope of future glory and it's becoming like Christ. The question is, are you willing to suffer like him? Are you willing to suffer for him? What does suffering look like in your life? Many of us will never suffer like Paul does. What does suffering look like to you? Does it mean that you forgive someone who's wronged you? Does it mean that if this is where you feel comfortable? I am comfortable right here as a Christian. I dare not step outside of this boundary right here. Does it mean stepping outside of that boundary? Sharing Jesus with someone that you know is going to throw it back at you? What does suffering look like? Because if we're like Christ and we're living like Christ, we're going to suffer because he did. Suffering to enter the kingdom. And then we look at number two, which is suffering to build the kingdom. Jesus gave a very specific command in Matthew 20. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And what Paul and Barnabas are doing is they're going and they're planting and they're, they're establishing elders and leaders in each church. And what they're doing is they're continuing to, to, to share with them, to build them up and to encourage them so that they can go and teach new believers and tell them what's going to happen too, that they can go and build them up too. And it's done through prayer and fasting. But what they do is they commit them to the Lord. They realize that the work had been started by the Holy Spirit. And after they, they take these elders, they commit them back to the Lord and say, Lord, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to work through them to continue to build your church. Do we underestimate as a church and as a people the power of the Holy Spirit to complete the work? It's not us that's doing it in our own power. It's the Holy Spirit that's doing it through us. And are we as a church dedicated to build the kingdom. That's why we're here. That's why we meet on Sundays. We gather as a community, but really what we're called to do is to go out and to share the gospel. And not only as a church, but in your life. Are you living the gospel? Are you sharing with others? Do people see Jesus? Is it part of your life to go and to make disciples? And you're like, you know what? I'm so focused on just learning it for myself. I'm not going to share with anybody else. That we're all called to do. It's not a job for the pastors to do. It's not a job just for the pastors. It's all of us. We're all called to build this kingdom. And that's exactly what they've done. Even if it means that we suffer. Even if it means in the midst of suffering. That that's what we're called to do. Suffering to enter the kingdom. Suffering to build the kingdom. And lastly, suffering to glorify God because he's opening up the door to others. Jesus prayed himself in the book of John. He says, I glorified you on earth, 
having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And what he means by glorified means to ascribe honor. He is ascribing honor to his father. And what Paul and Barnabas are doing is they've now returned back to the church of Antioch and they're now sharing their testimony about what God has done and how he's opened up the door of faith to the Gentiles. It's kind of what we do here when we have our Brazil mission trip. And before going on the trip, I remember thinking, and again, talking about being about me, thinking to myself, I'm going down to help people. I feel good about myself. I'm going down to help people in Brazil. But what I underestimated was how much God was actually going to do in and through me and what he was going to show me while I was down there. Because there's nothing better when we came back from Brazil to stand up here and say, let me tell you guys what God did. I saw people come to Christ down there and God working in and through other people and God working in me and allowing me to do things that I never thought I could do. You want to come back and you want to share your testimony of what God is doing and how he's opening up the door. And that's what they were doing. They were, they were sharing that. But let me tell you what, God doesn't always have to do it in the way that we think he's going to do it. And I want to share this story with you. It's from a book. It's called No Graven Image, and it's by an author named Elizabeth Elliot. And she was a missionary to the AUKUS people, the South American rainforest. And she writes, a, it's a fictional book about a woman named Margaret Sparhawk. She's a young, unmarried woman who has dedicated her life to translating the Bible to remote tribes. And what she's doing is she's working with a, a tribe in Ecuador called the Quechua people. And she comes across a man named Pedro who actually speaks this local dialect that can now translate the Bible in this local dialect. You can imagine how blessed she's felt this moment. And she's just taking a moment to think back. And she's thinking, you know, I think about all the support from my friends and all the financial support, the years of training, the years of building relationships. And this man named Pedro in my life, man, I can see that God is bringing everything together. You ever feel like that? that like you just feel like in your life, man, God is just bringing everything together. This is so awesome. And then one day she goes to visit Pedro. And he's got a, a painful, infected wound in his leg. And as a missionary, she provides some basic medical care. And she's got a syringe and she has penicillin. And he asks for it. And she gives it to him. And he begins convulsing. And he begins experiencing an allergic reaction to it. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. And the family is gathered around Pedro. And she's praying like she's never prayed before and saying, oh, Lord, please don't let him die. And you can imagine his wife is right there saying, you killed him. And he died. He dies. And she knows that because he's died, that's the end of her work. The work is done. You see, God knew that it would end when Pedro died. And the book ends with a confused missionary. There's no silver lining in the story. And there she is at Pedro's grave. And she's thinking to herself, God, you allowed him to die. Not only did you allow him to die, but you did it at my hands. Does this God expect me to worship him? He wants me to worship him? And this is what the last line of the book says. It says, God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was a God, or he was God, he had freed me. He freed me from the idol of a God that acted 
and think the way that we think he should. Of a God who supports our plans. Of a God who supports how we think things should go. And when things don't go the way that we think, we want to fire him. She was finally freed in her life to treat God as God. You see, the story that she tells right here actually mirrored the author's own journey and what she went through in her life. And she says she can now glorify him for who he is, not who she wants him to be. And that's exactly what happens to us when we see God work. He'll work in ways that we never imagined, even if it means that we suffer. You see, God is opening up doors for people, and he does it however he chooses. I can't help but think if we were one of the disciples standing there looking at the cross, or if we were there right now looking at Jesus on the cross, that we would be saying to ourselves, God, what are you doing? This is the Messiah right here, and you're letting him die. that was the very thing that God used to bring about salvation. He doesn't have to do it the way that we think. But you know what? We glorify him for who he is, not for who we want him to be. And what Paul and Barnabas are doing is they're going back and they're telling everybody, man, let me tell you about what God has done. He has opened up the door of faith to Gentiles. And he's done it even in the midst of them suffering for it. I want to end with this. Is Paul writes a letter to, to Timothy and he says in 2 Timothy, he says, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you see your life as one called to do his work? Where you are. How about in your families? How about where you work? How about to your neighbors? Do you see your life as one called to do his work? How about as part of the church? You see, the walk is so much bigger than just about us, that we're called to do work. But it's not us that's doing it. It's him doing it in and through us. And I want to share these words, what God says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 48. He says, Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, For my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. If you know anything about the refining process, what they do is they take unrefined ore and they heat it up and it gets really hot. And in it, it begins to melt and the impurities rise to the top. And the refiner comes and skims off the impurities until what is left is pure. And how does he know it's pure? Because he can look in there and see his reflection. You see, that's exactly what God does with us. God allows us to go through the furnace of affliction. Why? Because it begins to have the impurities in our life come to the top. And it's God that skims them off. We become more and more pure. We become more and more like Christ through that process. And how do we know it's done? Because the refiner can look in there and see himself. He can see Jesus. That's the way that God does it. Are you becoming more and more like Christ's reflection When we suffer, we will become like Christ. That's entering the kingdom. We'll do his work because we're called to build the kingdom. And we'll glorify God as he's opening up the doors for others because it's about pointing people to him. That's the Christian life. That's what the Christian life is about. And we have hope in the midst of all the suffering. Why? Because we serve a God 
who suffered for us, who saw us in the midst of our suffering and came down and suffered for us too so that we could enter the kingdom. Jesus suffered, Paul suffered, and we too were going to suffer. That's the path to true life, and that is the path of those are called according to his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we say, God, suffering is not a topic that we want to discuss. It's not something that we look forward to, Lord. Nobody wants to suffer in their life, Lord, but we also know that in the midst of our suffering, it's not just a hope in nothing. It's a hope in you, Lord, because you suffered for us. And you're with us in the midst of suffering so that we can go out and have confidence, Lord, and share Jesus. That we can go out and live a life that is Christ-like and point others to him, to a world that may not want to know you and doesn't know you, Lord. But that's what we're called to do. And it's in the midst of that that we become more and more like you. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you've done. Father, I know that those are there, those here today who have given their lives to Christ and suffering scares them, Lord. Our, our walk is about us, about being a better person, Lord, but you've called us to so much more than just that life. Father, we just lift them up in prayer right now that they would draw closer to you and know you, Father. Know you with their heart, not with their minds, Lord, and not just with their mind, but with their heart, Father. And know all that you have for them, Father. I also want to lift up in prayer, Lord, just those who don't know you as their Lord and Savior. That uh, I can't imagine right now after hearing suffering like Christ, they're willing to jump right in head first, Father. But you show us that that is the path to true life, Lord, is knowing you and becoming like you, Lord, because it makes all happiness here look like trash of what you have for future glory, Lord. But it means knowing you. And I just want to lead those of you who have not given Jesus or not made Jesus Christ your Lord and say, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to, to pray along with me to yourselves a prayer to allow Jesus to, to come into your life and to be king and ruler over your life. And just where you are right now, just ask that you would, uh, you would just repeat these words to yourself and say, Dear Jesus, I ask that you please forgive me of my sins. I have lived my whole life apart from you. Jesus, I believe that you died and rose again to forgive me of my sins. And Jesus, I will follow you for the rest of my life. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. With all heads bowed and all eyes closed, you guys, if you prayed that prayer, just raise your hand right where you are. Thank you. Thank you. You guys, just take a moment now just to think about what God has said to you. What has God shared you? How does it convict you of what he said right now? I just want to ask you guys, as, uh, as you think about that and as we sing our last worship song, just to ask God to change you and to know him.